0: This message comes from NPR sponsor, Comcast Business. Is it possible to get business internet you can really rely on? It is, with 99.9% network reliability from Comcast Business. Powering possibilities. You're listening to Shortwave from NPR. Think about your neighborhood. Can you see it now? Are there lots of trees, parks, sidewalks? Or is there a lot of concrete? Are you close to a highway? What animals do you see in your backyard? Who lives near you? Well, if you live in the U.S., odds are your neighborhood may still be experiencing the aftermath of a policy called redlining. Dr. Chloe Schmitz at the German Center for Integrative Biodiversity Research says it started in the 1930s.
1: That was when this homeowner's loan corporation was established, and they essentially said, agents out across cities in the U.S. to, you know, write reports on and grade the quality of different neighborhoods. And so there were just a lot of zoning and loan and, you know, mortgage practices that were all based on on these grades. And so if you were, for instance, a Black person and you were trying to buy a house in an area that was graded A, you still just were not able to buy a home in those areas. And so it was finally outlawed in 1968 with the Fair Housing Act. But a lot of the times, the racial composition has still persisted from these practices.
0: When Chloe was a Ph.D. student in Winnipeg, Canada, she was studying wildlife in urban areas. She and her advisor Colin Garraway came across a 2020 paper that posed a hypothesis. If the echoes of systemic racism affects the habitats and overall environments of cities, then it should affect the wildlife as well. Our minds were kind of blown and we
1: were like, wow, this would be really, really cool to, to test. And it's such a straightforward um, hypothesis with straightforward expectations. And we kind of already
0: had the data ready to go um, to be able to test it across the U.S. They used data from other studies looking at 39 species of animals at 268 locations in cities across the United States. Then Chloe and Colin put together a picture of how history can shape how all living creatures in cities thrive. Or don't. Today's show, I talked to Chloe and Colin about how systemic racism can affect biodiversity of wildlife in cities. I'm Regina Barber. You're listening to Shortwave, the daily science podcast from NPR. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Solgar. As people age, cellular function declines, which may impact changes in energy and strength. Solgar Cellular Nutrition is a holistic collection of cellular nutrients formulated to help fight cellular decline and promote cell health. Learn more at cellularnutrition.solgar.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Chloe and Colin wanted to get as much data as they could to see if there was a correlation between racial makeup of a neighborhood and the health or biodiversity of the wildlife populations in those areas. Can you explain what you did with that data? So, like, what animals did you look at? Like, what data did you take? We started
1: with um, mammals and collecting them in... The U.S. and Canada, just because there's been a lot of studies done there. So there was a lot of data available. Um, and then we eventually expanded to just all terrestrial vertebrates. So we've got mammals, we've got birds, amphibians, reptiles, um, you know, and and amongst mammals, we've got everything from mice to deer to bears and, um, you know, birds. We've got chickadees to ducks and geese. And, you know, there's this, there's all sorts of kind of random species in there.
0: Yeah. What did you find?
1: We found that wildlife populations, so from across mammals, amphibians, reptiles, birds, the populations that lived in areas with higher proportions of white residents tended to be bigger and they tended to be more well-connected. And both of those things are super important from an evolutionary perspective because, you know, Bigger populations tend to be more resilient to kind of environmental changes that if there's only a couple individuals in there, they might get totally wiped out. Um, and then bigger populations also tend to have higher genetic diversity, which is what we found. And having more diversity, having more you know individuals moving around between populations and sharing genes this is all good for long-term population persistence because that's, you know, the raw material that evolution has to work with to be able to adapt to environmental changes and, you know, those are happening in cities just all the time. and so it's it's quite important for urban populations.
0: i think a lot of people will be like, well, maybe it's not racial, maybe it's economic, but you you both were like, no, it's it's racial not economic. can you tell me a little bit more about that?
2: redlining was not based on wealth. It was based on race. If you were part of a, a group that was being forced to live in a particular neighborhood, you were forced to live there regardless of, of your wealth. And then there are certainly economic disparities, um, but the way we think about it, and I think the way it's thought about in the literature, is that uh, systemic racism is is a common cause of both um, wealth inequities, and in this case, environmental disparities as well.
1: I just want to add that, you know, an area might have a high median income, but where the parks get placed and kind of where street trees are is a municipal decision. And so it's how much the city wants to invest in these different parts. And Mm. so redlining caused differential investment in greening different parts of cities. And, you know, that was another a choice that that someone made and so to say that this habitat quality is, you know, strictly a product of socioeconomics and income just isn't isn't really the full picture.
0: So Chloe, what was then surprising to you about the results? Or was it surprising?
1: Well, it was both surprising and unsurprising. <laughs> I think, you know, given the The consistency with which these policies were applied across the country, we did suspect that we would see these patterns, but I don't think either of us really thought it would fall out the way it did, you know, because in evolutionary terms, that's a relatively recent change, you know, from from the 30s until now, you know, for evolutionary time, it's not very long. And so I think the fact that we did pick out the effects that we expected to find was a little surprising and also a little sad. Mm. All of these species had higher genetic diversity in these neighborhoods with higher proportions of, of white residents. And so to see those effects so consistently across all these different species was actually quite surprising to us.
0: So Colin, what what do you think is the most important result you hope people understand or take away from the study?
2: Um, It's really clear that it's a result of differential investment in green space, different policies uh, related to pollution and building. And this is something that we can change our mind about. We can plant more trees, we can um, pollute less. And we're talking lots about genetic diversity here, but genetic diversity is linked to just the the size and number of animals in biodiversity in, in neighborhoods. Mm. So by refocusing and careful planning, we can increase the number of animals in everybody's neighborhoods. So yeah, this, this highlights a problem and inequity, but also a solution.
0: Chloe, why is a more biodiverse ecosystem or a more biodiverse wildlife population important for the human population in that same area?
1: We're talking a lot about genetic diversity and things, which is kind of an abstract concept, but it's, you know, we could think of it as almost an indicator of the the habitat quality. And if we know that um, people also benefit from green space and, you know, seeing wildlife and biodiversity around, then the fact that we're able to detect these effects of habitat quality on population genetics really means that there's a problem, you know? And I think that it's very clear from a lot of different sources that these differences in habitats exist and that they are bad for human health. So, you know, in addition to, you know, having less green space, we also know that neighborhoods with non-white communities tend to be located closer to like toxic waste dumps or Mm. highways. But I, I think that's, starting to be more recognized and accepted now that this was a product of human choices and that it's going to take kind of a similar direct and effective choice to reverse it. And um, I will say that actually that's one of the Biden administration's um, stated priorities. It's really Mm -hmm. specifically focused on environmental justice and getting equality in just environments where people live. And so hopefully with kind of
0: systematic efforts like that will be
1: able to turn this around
0: racism is a is a topic many people are uncomfortable talking about right so you talked about how once this paper came out you're worried about social media you're worried about backlash can you tell me like a little bit more about that and then tell me how the paper actually was received
1: um uh, yeah i was i was extremely worried um i'm a biologist. I don't usually engage with these sorts of topics and I definitely don't do anything that could be construed as controversial. And since the paper has come out, yeah, my fears were completely overblown. There were a few stray comments here and there on Twitter, but really nothing compared to what I was expecting. And really it's I think, at least in my experience, from what people have told me, it's been well received. People are really interested. They think it's really important because, you know, mm-hmm. cities are places that humans have made. It's it's all down to our choices. Um, they think this is an important aspect that needs exploring. And if it makes some people uncomfortable, like. It's still there, and we still need to understand how it works. So, mm-hmm. actually, the the biggest road bumps we had in getting this paper out was during the review process, where it was um, very awkward because you know we had a reviewer who was almost. I don't know, personally mad uh, because I think they assumed that two white Canadians were writing this paper about systemic racism in the U.S. And we got the idea. They're thinking, what well, business of it is theirs? You know, who are who are they to, <laughs> to be writing about this? And yeah, so I, I mean, the paper was initially rejected um, at first, and that was part of the reason. Mm. And so, you know... How
0: did you reply? Well, I
1: mean, first of all, we had to come back and it's maybe assumptions about people based on their name and current affiliation aren't great. You know, I'm like, I'm American. I am mixed race. And so it was just a, I was, I was very personally offended after reading, um, those reviews and I mean, not just offended, just insulted. And so, right. Yeah. That was honestly the weirdest part and why I was expecting more backlash to be honest.
2: (laughs) In this paper, we don't talk about how people should feel or other things. So I think who says what does matter? Like there's things that I wouldn't and shouldn't say, um, but we were very careful in this paper and it's Chloe's paper. Um, So this was like a completely inappropriate review that we submitted a formal appeal to the journal and it was appealed and then they reconsidered and then things went more smoothly after that. And this review really didn't focus on the content of the paper. That's what set us up for the, expectation of backlash probably more than anything, eh, Chloe?
1: Yeah, for sure. Yeah. (laughs) That made me extremely nervous. I mean, they had me questioning if I was a person who should be writing the paper, you know?
0: (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And who can't, right?
1: Yeah. I mean, honestly, a small part of me wants it out there just to know that you, you shouldn't make these assumptions about people. But, I mean, of course, it is important who are the people writing the paper, but, you know, where where do you draw that line i don't know so
0: it's yeah, complicated I, it's, I know
1: yeah <laughs> and you know that's another another thing with this because i'm a biologist i'm not a sociologist and so you know a lot of times we were wondering are we qualified are we the person to do this but mm-hmm. because we were really just focusing on the the wildlife and genetics we felt we were you know on solid ground and that mm-hmm. it was a straightforward question just happened to be about race We obviously don't want this, you know, overwhelming the rest of the main message.
0: Chloe and Colin both say they want to continue this kind of research and have even talked about collaborating with people outside of biology or ecology. Colin says in Canada, redlining existed in different ways. And some preliminary research has shown hints of the same patterns they found in the U.S. This episode was produced by Rebecca Ramirez and Giselle Grayson. It was edited by Giselle Grayson and fact-checked by Abby Levine. Josh Newell was our audio engineer. Brendan Crump is our podcast coordinator. Beth Donovan is our senior director. And Anya Grenman is our senior vice president of programming. I'm Regina Barber. Thanks for listening to Shortwave, the daily science podcast from NPR. Support for this NPR podcast and the following message come from Easy Cater, Committed to helping companies, from nonprofits to the Fortune 500, solve food for work. From ordering online for meetings and team lunches to managing food spend for your whole organization, Easy Cater can help you simplify your corporate catering needs. Over 100,000 restaurants nationwide, plus budgeting tools and payment by invoice. Learn more at easycater.com.